Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is a WQXR Cafe concert. I'm Jeff Spurgeon, and we're joined in the studio today by the Russian-born violinist Alina Ibragimova. She has a big following in Europe, especially in the UK, where she studied and came of age. Um, She's going to have a little bigger following in New York, too, after performing at the Mostly Mozart Festival and in a cafe concert here with us at WQXR. We'll talk with her in a moment, but first she's going to begin with Isaiah's Sonata Number 3, the Ballad.
Violinist Alina Ibragimova playing Eugenie Zayas, Sonata Number no. 3. Uh, Alina, you've just released a recording of the violin sonatas of Isaiah, some of the most famously difficult solo works in the violin repertoire. How long have you been playing these pieces, and why did you decide to record them now? Uh, actually, the idea came from Hyperion Records, uh, the label I record for. Yeah, they just asked me to do them, and I thought, yeah, great idea, great challenge <laughs> for a violinist uh, to do that. But you knew, you'd you known the pieces for years and years. Not all of them. I, I'd played about half of them before, really? uh, only, actually. Yeah, and uh, so I, I learned the other three, and uh, yeah, played played them a few times in concert, all six, which is really fun to do it all in one concert. Uh, and yeah, and then recorded them, and really enjoyed it. <laughs> They're portraits of a sort of six violinists whom Isaiah knew in the 1920s, Josef Sigiri and Jacques Thibault, Georges Inescu, for whom the third, the one you played for us, uh, was written, Fritz Kreisler, Matthew Crickboom, and Manuel Quiroga. Do you get a sense of these violinists? Uh, we know some of these people by, by the music they've written or performed famously. There are probably recordings of lots of them. I don't know them all. Mm. Maybe, do you, was that, oh, that's who Inescu was. When you played that, uh, a little bit actually, yes. Yeah, you hear you hear the personalities who he wrote them for, um, and the, the number four for Chrysler. Yeah, it's 
it's obvious he had them in mind when he was writing right. uh, writing those. Um, yeah, and it's really nice. They feel like uh, proper little dedications. Mm. You also just finished some solo concerts of Bach at the BBC Proms. You played his unaccompanied violin sonatas and partitas at a late-night concert in the Royal Albert Hall. The reviews have been very positive. What was it like for you and just a single violin <laughs> to try and fill up that giant space of the Royal Albert Hall? <laughs> yeah, it was very hard to imagine before, I have to say, because I, I played there once with, with a big orchestra, and uh, and knowing how big the space is, I really had no idea how that would be. So, you know, I had to kind of trust the proms that it would work because they, they, they'd asked me. and They've and, done this before, yeah. Well, not really, actually. I think this is this was the first time they did the complete solo violin Bach there. So, yeah, so I think it was in a way kind of an experiment mm. for everyone. But but uh, w- once I went there to rehearse, actually, it worked perfectly. You could, I, I really felt I could do anything in that space. Really? I felt I could be really, I could play very quietly. I could, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a sort of paradoxical venue in that sense, I think. Uh, in that you it, can shrink it. it seems you can you really shrink it. You can have... I don't know, tennis matches there as well. You, you can do anything. It's an amazing place. Yeah. Um, you're going to play some Bach for us today. This is the Largo from the Solo Violin Sonata Number no. 3 by J.S. Bach.
Alina Ibragimova playing the Largo from Bach's Sonata for Unaccompanied Violin, number three. Alina Ibragimova is here in New York to perform at Mostly Mozart. You're doing the Prokofiev Sonatas with pianist Stephen Osborne in a late-night concert at the Kaplan Penthouse. Um, the, the BBC Proms, Bach things were late-night concerts. This is going to be a late-night thing. How are the late-night concerts different for an artist? I, I feel like they're lots different for an audience. The attitude is just different. Is it different for the performer, too, or is this, you know, what's on the program? <laughs> you show up at this time, you go on, you do your stuff. Yeah, I think the atmosphere uh, changes for yeah for with, you with the time of day. Yes, for me too, and yeah for the for the Bach. I think it's it also helped that these were actually late nights in the in the Albert Hall because I think people listen differently a little bit. But how about for you? Um, do, you do you maybe what time of day do you practice on it? Typical. I mean, well, artists I like I you don't necessarily <laughs> have typical days, but but if you're home, if I'm home, I practice in the mornings. I, I like practicing in the mornings. So do you have to take a nap in the afternoon to do a late night concert? Yes, then? you do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. yeah. No, I, I I generally like sleeping before concerts anyway. Really? To, yeah. Yeah. Just to be awake. Uh, okay. I think everyone's different with that, but yeah. uh, uh, I think audience members should do that too. I take a nap before the concert. Well, why not? Yeah. <laughs> it keeps you awake. I well, think in the evenings. It's listening. Good. Listening is hard work. I, my belief is that people sleep in concerts in part because they're in a dark, quiet place. And it's yeah, nice. yeah, but well. also because listening is hard work. That's yes. Whew. Yeah. Now you're also playing, as if there weren't enough, you're also playing the Mendelssohn Concerto with the Academy of Ancient Music at mostly Mozart this year. So let's see, Bach and Isaiah and Mendelssohn and, and Prokofiev. Mm-hmm. How, Alina Ibrahimova, do you switch your head to get <laughs> in the right place for all of these different composers and their sounds? Lots of artists don't do that. They'll get a program and they'll play it for a few months and then they'll switch a program. Yeah, I yeah, I try not to do that actually. I I get a bit restless. I like I like to keep things different. Uh, uh yeah, I don't know. I, I enjoy the challenge of sort of yeah, switching my mind. Right. I think I I found that hard in the beginning especially with uh you know, changing instruments and changing bows and strings and all that, you know, when you're working with a period in- instrument ensemble and when you're playing as I, it's completely different. Um but uh, yeah, now now it's sort of what I do. <laughs> do you so? What do you do to make sure that happens? Is that just the rehearsal process? You know, you play through the program in in rehearsal or in, or practicing in a hotel room wherever you are, and that's enough to say, okay, I'm in the Prokofiev zone now. I'm ready to go. Yes, and actually, I think the music kind of does that for me anyway. Uh, once I I'm faced with Prokofiev, I'll always play it differently. You know, I'm I'll never suddenly have I don't know a technique I use for Vivaldi. It's it's just it just doesn't come, <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's kind of a natural process now. Really. Well, good for you. I think it's wonderful and, <laughs> and a great challenge, too. Mm. Now, you have also formed a string quartet, and we're going to get back to that violin switching thing you were talking about uh, a minute ago. You've also formed a string quartet called um, Chiaroscuro that uses period instruments, but you don't have a modern instrument and and then another instrument that you play Baroque from. So how do you deal with setting up your violin, do you do the setup? Do you go to technicians locally? And how long does it take to change gut strings to steel strings? Do you alter the bridge? Do you change bows when you play, period, performance style? What's the, what's the problem? It sounds like you have to take this thing like into the garage and turn it over <laughs> to the violin mechanic for a couple of days. Get the oil changed, have a couple of belts tightened. What do you do? No, well, I, I change strings, uh, pitch, uh, bows. I, I don't really do the bridge 
and whilst it works, it, it's fine. I know that it's not really ideal. Eventually, and actually now I'm going to try uh, a different violin to use for the quartet, um, just so so that I don't have to put my violin through this all the time. Because I I always feel like, especially with with the pressure, you know, with the with the gut strings, the pressure immediately is less. And then if you lower the pitch, that's less too. So my violin is very happy when that happens, but then once you have to put the metal strings on again and uh, go back up to the pitch, that's when I feel it becomes a bit tense. And in the last sort of uh, couple of years, I think I've had a little more things opening up than usual in the violin, you know, like little cracks, little things, and I have a feeling that's to do with that. So, yeah, I'm I'm going to try and... and change this <laughs> and, yeah, get, get yeah two axes instead but of just one. but for for what it's worth i mean it it this violin works very well mm-hmm. in both so when you change the setup how much time does the violin need to sort of get acclimated do you give it a day or two days i don't know how long how long it takes to get the instrument to sort of settle down so it's not moving around too much um well a couple of days usually uh I've I'm also quite good at playing when it's out of tune <laughs> when the strings are out of tune you know you I think uh, all period instrument players know how to deal with that uh, anyway um but for it to sort of sound at its best it needs up to a week I would say wow mm. so you know I, it works but it's not you know it's much happier if I were to mm. keep it in one setup for a month or so you play with gut strings, but you are not a gutless performer to make all these changes in repertoire and the instrument all the time. That, that um, uh, reveals, uh, for me at least, it reveals a sense of risk that you like to take, which is very exciting. <laughs> Tell us about this violin, 1780 Anselmo Bellosio. Yes, quite a uh, relatively rare maker. Yeah, um, not a name that I've come across. No, not my, a many people person, don't, know, uh, don't know him, but uh, a Venetian maker. Mm-hmm. Um, for a while, this violin was known as a Pietro Guarneri because that's what everyone thought. And then um, there was actually a, a recently a big exhibition in London of all the Bellosio, of many of his instruments. And uh, and th- then that's when people realized it was actually Bellosio, some experts. So, yeah, it has a, it had a name change. <laughs> it's it's been through a couple of things. Too. Yes. Uh, well, yeah. Well, it's not in a seamless condition. Uh, it's also very old, so that's understandable. But. Uh, it's probably had a couple of accidents um, before I got it, so, but it didn't didn't affect the sound at all, and yeah, sings beautifully. Yeah, it's doing well. Yeah. <laughs> Is it an easy violin to play? The sound comes out of it, or do you have to dig into it a little bit? Now it's easy because it's also uh, I kind of made it my own now. Uh, in the beginning, it it needed some time to just, uh, yeah, uh, open up a little bit. Right. You live in Greenwich, England. Your husband is a critic for the Guardian, a fellow named Tom Service. Got married in the spring. You first met when when he interviewed you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, how is it to be married to a music critic? Aren't, aren't you just in this atmosphere of it's never quite good enough all the time? No, I think he he loves music. He's uh, he's very passionate. No, I really don't feel that at all. I'm really not looking for dirt. It sounds like I'm looking no, no, for no. dirt on your relationship. <laughs> no. That's not the case. That's not the case. But talking with, with somebody who's as focused on listening and evaluating performance all the time. I think uh, he, yes, he, he does that. But at the same time, he just knows so much about music. And there's so many books now at home. <laughs> it's great. Uh, so, yeah, no, that, in that sense, it's really useful. He knows all the opus numbers of everything. <laughs> it's great. 
What do you listen to when you're not listening to classical music, or or what classical music do you listen to? What uh, what's you know, on actually, your what's on your iPod? I hardly listen to music mm-hmm. when I'm yeah when I'm at home. Um, but when I do, it's it tends to be something different. I I you, know, you don't don't like hide. Tom Waits a lot. Okay, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. You know, I, I'm not uh, random Russian gypsy stuff. I, I, I don't really have areas. Right. <laughs> so Tom Waits on. you like. What else? Anybody else? Uh, I don't know. Bob Dylan. What do you have uh, that you're looking forward to doing? What are, you, what are some of your next projects? As if Isaiah and Bach and mm-hmm. Prokofiev and Mendelssohn weren't all enough together. Uh, well, we're doing uh, the complete Mozart violin sonatas with the pianist Cedric Tibergian, Um which is, uh, and we're doing all of them, even all the little ones which he wrote when he was very young, so when he was six, you know. Which all together makes thirty-seven sonatas we're doing. <laughs> and is that a concert program too, or will it just be? Uh, we we do. Uh, it makes up five concert programs, which we d- we're doing over sort of a year and a half. Except, uh, except in some places when we do sort of three concerts in three days, which is a little crazy. But um, yeah, so that's that's a big project. And um, next year I'm learning the Bartok Second Violin Concerto, which I've been meaning to do for years and years, and finally I'm getting around to it. Alina Ibragimova, it's great talking with you and thrilling to hear you, and congratulations on your mostly Mozart appearances, and thanks for coming to WQXR. Thank you.